Welcome to Everything Just Changed. Today we are bringing you the first of a couple of bonus episodes that we're releasing as we approach Christmas and the end of the year. We're bringing you a couple episodes of the iHeartPCA podcast. iHeartPCA is hosted by our friends Doug Servan and Justin Edgar, focusing on the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, where both Brad and I are pastors. In iHeartPCA, Doug and Justin bring little glimpses of what God is doing in this little corner of his church. And they have a whole lot of fun doing it as well. Today we're bringing you their conversation with Pastor Greg Thompson. We hope you enjoy it and be sure to check out iHeartPCA for more conversations like this. You can find them on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never imagined when I took my ordination vows that <laughs> 20 years later, I'd be sitting on a tour bus with a bunch of actors, singers, and dancers as a part of my understanding of mission. And, and I am, could not be more thrilled. Hey everybody out there, this is Doug Servan. I am calling in to you on our favorite platform, Zoom, sending it out into the universe on iHeartPCA. And so the universe is responding that they want more episodes of this. And so we're bringing you more people in the PCA, more things in the PCA. The PCA is the Presbyterian Church in America. I'm a pastor here in Oklahoma City maybe consider the epicenter of the PCA. I'm unsure. <laughs> and um, the PCA is stands for the Presbyterian church in America, but I'm not the only one. We have a guest with us, but we also have a co-host, Justin, tell us who you are, what you're doing and what epicenter you are in. I'm not in the epicenter. Uh, Albuquerque is not the epicenter of anything, but uh, you know, meth lords and um you know breaking bad slash better call Saul so you know that's where I'm at Doug chilling how has your day been today it's it's always better when I'm with you on the pod here buddy that is good I wanted to tell you I don't often do this or I haven't often do this you know that I signed up for a PhD class at the University of Oklahoma I do and it's on history, and I'm mostly interested in civil rights history and the church. And so I'm taking this class, and then the coronavirus hits. Have you heard of that coronavirus? I think I have, Doug. Okay. It's, a, it's been going around, and so I didn't really have a lot of capacity, but I had this paper I had to write, and I'd paid all this money, and I'd sign up for this class, and so I was going to get an F on this paper. And it's about civil rights in the church. And then, sadly, George Floyd happened. And, but that was a big motivation for me to try to wrap my head around our current time, civil rights in general, 
and the PCA. So I literally finished my paper. Woo! Good job, man. For a degree that you won't finish now, right? I, I decided to not continue the degree. I just don't think I have the ability to. So I'm going to switch something else. But still, I was staring an F in the face. And I think I've recovered. And it's going to be the strangest paper this professor has ever read. So tell us why you think he'll think it's strange. Because it's supposed to be looking at a historiography, which is where you take different books on the same topic and you pit them against each other. But then I do that for a little bit. But then I start talking about the, the pandemic and George Floyd and the PCA. So I just made it a, applicable. So he's, I think, going to read this being you know, like, what in the world? So I'm hoping he's going to say, I can't give this guy an F. Hopefully. He might not. He won't. <laughs> he, he, he won't he might, I don't think he will, but he might. But I didn't think I was going to write this paper. So I pulled one out. It's good. I'm just telling you. And, um, and that pertains, I think, a little bit to our guest, would you say? It does. Very okay. much so. Very good. So I'm going to bring in our guest. I don't think he uh, tried to get papers at the last minute, though. I think he's a little bit more established than that. We can ask him. I'm unsure. Uh, Our guest today is Greg Thompson. Greg Thompson has wearing a lot of hats these days. And so I'm going to let him describe the hats and tell us what one he wants to highlight or just give us an overview. Greg, so glad to have you. I'm so glad to be your friend. It's so great to talk to you on this Friday afternoon. Tell us what's up, where you're at, and then we'll ask you our next question. Great. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's good to see your faces. Um, so I'm, I have been a PCA pastor for nearly 20 years and, um, I'm not serving a congregation right now, uh, for the past four years, I've been doing other things, but my, my work at this point is almost wholly focused on race and equity work. Uh, and, and by way of example, two, two projects that I'm sure we could talk about. One is, uh, I've just finished co-authoring a book with Duke Kwan on reparations and local congregations. And that comes out next year. And, uh, so I'm excited about that. So we're leading this thing called the reparations project. And then, um, my, my main work is I'm leading a project to build a national memorial to the underground railroad outside of Philadelphia. And that has to do with, with reparations in some important ways, but that is, that's the kind of day-to-day work. Awesome. So do you want to use my paper? (laughs) I don't know. I I did think that you, your statement that you were staring at F in the face and now you're not might have been optimistic, but (laughs) you know, we'll see. I'd love to, I'd love to read your paper because I love you and think that your mind is, is amazing. Well, Greg is part of our, we have these series, Greg, you don't know about yet because unless you're up to speed on all the episodes to this point, which I'm assuming you are. I'm assuming you are. We'll cut that part okay. out that you, you're not. Um, so we have an RUF campus minister theory series, and then we have a pastor series, and we also have a white American pastor series. And then we've got to like do another stuff. So you're crossing all these categories, right? <laughs> uh, amazingly, yeah. but we got to know each other in RUF. Why don't you tell us how you got to the PCA 
what that story is, if you grew up in it, how, how you ended up in RUF at Covenant Seminary. I met you at Covenant Seminary, so give us the backstory on getting to where we are now. Yeah, so my my life in the PCA, both how I got in and how I've stayed in, um, is, is really a good story of God's faithfulness to me through people. Uh, when I was in high school, I met, I met, had some friends that went to a youth group um, at a PCA church in South Carolina. I was not a Christian at that point. They invited me to come, and I went and made some of my most enduring friendships there as a, as a ninth grader. And um, the people in that church cared for me. They, they nurtured me in my faith. They gave me my first, you know, devotional books and took me on mission trips and did all that, that kind of stuff and spent time with me as a youth group kid. And, um, and that, that changed my life. And then really at their, I think because I admire them so much, I began to think about pastoral ministry and didn't really think about a lot of other things. It was largely due to the influence of important mentors in my life. And at their direction, I started looking at seminaries and I went to Covenant Seminary largely for two reasons. One is, you know, um, more surface, and it was because they had an emphasis on in Christianity and culture uh, that I was interested in and remain interested in. Um, but really the reason is because I went to the classes and met men like Hans Beyer and Richard Winter, and I thought, how do you get to be like that? Like, how do you become those kind of people? Um, I then didn't know what exactly what I wanted to do, which is something that has plagued my, <laughs> my vocational biography. <clears throat> I wasn't really prepared to be a pastor in the church, um, was interested in academics, interested in, in culture stuff. Uh, so I became an RUF campus minister. It was a way to split the difference uh, in, in my mind at that point. And uh, University of Virginia opportunity came open. And I was very grateful to be hired to do that and called to do that. And, uh, and that again, met really important friendships in that, in that community. And that sustained me, learned a lot about, about ministry. It also gave me a lot of freedom and an opportunity to explore the think the, the many questions and interests that I have and continue to have. And it was wonderful for me. And then, uh, and I'll wrap it up after this. I left RUF in 2005 because I wanted to do a PhD at UVA and I was planning on becoming an assistant pastor at Trinity church in Charlottesville. That was the plan. I'd been there for about a month as an assistant when the senior pastor left and, uh, my life immediately began to take a different shape, a very surprising shape. Um, and within about nine months, I was the senior pastor of Trinity in Charlottesville. Um, our, the senior pastor who was there, who was a mentor and a friend of mine decided to, uh, move to England to, to, do mission work there. So I was a senior pastor for 10 years at, um, almost 11 years actually at Trinity church in Charlottesville and left that work in, in 2016. So yeah, I know you've done maybe lots of things since 2016. So maybe fill in some of the gaps for, for that, just to, you know, tell us what kind of things you've been up to. Yeah. So I did my PhD on King at, at UVA on Martin Luther King. And you know, that, because of the slow pace of it, because I was a senior pastor of a church, that meant that I essentially spent a full decade completely immersed in the history of the civil rights movement and African-American intellectual history and social and political theory regarding race um, in America. And I don't know how else to say it, but that just changed me. Um, and I finished my PhD in 2015, felt like I wanted to do more work in race, didn't exactly know how. And, uh, 
in 2015, you'll remember that in this month in 2015, so five years ago, uh, the Charleston shootings happened. And about a month after those shootings, I was invited to a small group gathering of black and white leaders. I think they got fairly low down the totem pole <laughs> to get me there. There were about 12 people in Washington, D.C. that basically were trying to figure out what what was going on and why the white evangelical church was so silent um, generally on these issues. And while I was there, uh, a, a man who's become a friend named Joshua Dubois, um, he had been working in, in, the, in Obama's faith-based office at, uh, at that point. He said to me, why are you essentially hiding out in these white institutions? Uh, we need you to be present. You're a, you're a white man from South Carolina who's spent a decade working on, on intellectual history from African-American life, and we need you in more, more fully in this struggle. And I knew at that point that I was being called to something, but I didn't know what it was. But by that was in July, by November of, of 2015, I decided I was going to leave Trinity uh, or shift my role. And by May of 2016, I, I did. And it's been, a, it's been a complicated road for me to try to figure out how to essentially switch vocations in my 40s uh, based on a missional calling mm -hmm. to address, to address uh, American white supremacy. And so I've done a number of things. I helped, um, I've been working on a team to restore Historic Claiborne Temple. That's the a church in downtown Memphis that was the site of Martin Luther King's last march. That church had fallen into disrepair, and I'm working with a team there following a, a wonderful executive director named Manasa Troutman, uh, uh, her lead there. I wrote a musical with a rapper in Atlanta named Show Baraka and uh, that tells a story of that last campaign. And that has been on tour. Obviously, we canceled our shows because of Corona, but that has allowed us to do a bunch more creative work um, and infrastructural work. So I'm grateful for that. I am, uh, as I said, building a memorial to the Underground Railroad. It's it's more than that, but it that's that's kind of a shorthand. We're trying to basically promote the story, the nationally significant story of the Underground Railroad in the Philadelphia area. Mm -hmm. And so I'm leading a bunch of projects around that with a have a great team there. And in order to sort of make sense uh, of it, I, I in, in part that's part of the reason I wrote this book on reparations. Mm -hmm. Because I actually, if people say, what do you do? I do reparations. That's what I do. Hmm. Okay, wait. We zoomed ahead. We want to zoom back and then dive Sorry, back in ahead. Justin, you you went ahead. Okay, I want to I want to back up first. Okay. Okay, Covenant Seminary and RUF for a guy who ends up being interested in civil rights, but is from the South. So what happened to you? And I'm not saying it's abnormal per se, but like what got you to where you're not speaking the normal narrative? And do you think it's the normal PCA narrative that you're not speaking? Or how would you describe intellect, intellectual education, the church, the South, and you're like going different direction. It seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. So is that a loaded question? I, I am, is that a bad question? I don't know. I'm not sure. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, question asking for me to just explain, you know, my own story. And I think I'm grateful for that. Um, so I think it's convergence of, uh, let's say 
let's say four things. All right. One of them is personal autobiography. You're, you're right. I'm from South Carolina. I grew up in, in that world. And, and I, which means that I intuitively at a cellular level understand and feel the American South. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a Southern guy and that's just at the heart of a lot of how I experience the world. So there's something autobiographical about that. I also happen to be the descendant of Klan members. My grandparents were in the Klan in South Carolina. That's not a huge part of my story. And I want to overblame, overblow that, but it is, it has an impact. Right. Um, so there's that. Then, uh, there would be, I think, um, an intellectual part to this where I spent, um, well, before I get to do that, let me say a, a missional part to this. I spent, as you know, probably 10 to 15 years and my niche was, was culture. I wanted to understand, you know, re- religion, culture, Christianity, and culture. And when I would do talks at conferences, it was always about that. It was, I was talking about globalization and secularization and pluralism. And then people heard those talks. Um, so I, I'm very concerned about the missional future of the church. And that's one of the streams inside of me because I, I have believed that we're a missionary church, not an establishment church, but a missionary church in a post-Christian context. And, and that not everybody in our community believes that. So that I was very concerned about that. At the same time though, I'm doing this PhD and I'm studying essentially American political culture, which at its heart is, is deeply enmeshed in race issues in ways that I didn't even understand. Um, and so I, I remember where there's the moment when these two, this missiological concern and the intellectual concern converged. And I began, I became convinced as I am convinced right now that the actual missiological backdrop to the American church's work is not secularization. It's not liberalism. It's not fundamentally even capitalism or globalization. It is white supremacy. I'm just 1000% convinced, convinced of that. And that, for me to be a Christian missionary in a culture that is so profoundly formed by, by the, the structure of uh, the political and social and economic structure of white supremacy and not to directly address that began to feel increasingly disingenuous and confusing. It would be like going to Rwanda and not talking about the genocide, you know, but talking about like broken relationships, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're just like, Oh, it's not broken relationships. This is a genocide. That's what happened. Um, and so, I became convinced of that. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I became convinced of that. I was at a house in Georgetown, South Carolina, writing a chapter on uh, on the dehumanization of African Americans and the different structures, uh, intellectual and economic structures that perpetuated that, especially during the history of slavery. And I, it was like one in the morning, and I slid my chair back and I said out loud. I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian pastor in the longest standing white supremacist nation in the history of the world. And I have got to start talking about culture and my experience of culture in a different way. And, and I, I just became historically convinced of that. And that's, that's what happened. And then the fourth thing, so there's the autobiographical, there's a missiological, there's this like intellectual formation, which I'm very grateful for. And the fourth thing is really just, it's relational. I began to listen to my black friends um, and to, to grow that circle to where now almost my entire community day to day is African-American. And what they were saying to me was, you need to follow us into this world. And so I did. And that's, that's really it. Uh, it, it. My life has taken a totally different turn than I thought it would take. It's, it's unexpected, um, but I'm deeply grateful for it. You know, Greg, I think I'm on a similar journey with a lot less credentialedness, but 
which is fine. I think some of the seedbed of that really was Covenant Seminary. This is one thing I've been thinking a lot about is it was not really directly addressed, but like the Francis Schaeffer Institute and the cultural hermeneutic that was completely biblical was completely confessional and all these things, you know, so I don't want to pretend like it was some weird, but like that really made a difference in my brain that took 10, 15, 20 years to work out. But I think it was set partially in an ethos of covenant. Do you think that's true? I appreciate you pointing that out because I actually should have had a, a fifth line in my formation and it's more like a, an ecclesial autobiography. And that is say, when I became a Christian, it was in the 1980s uh, in the midst of um, the racial reconciliation movement that was largely mediated through promise keepers and things like that. But still it, it, like it opened me up to that, that thinking when I, and then when I went to covenant, two things happened. One is I was working downtown uh, at the Sunshine Rescue Mission, which is a partnership that Covenant Seminary had, which exposed me to um, the downtown St. Louis African-American culture, where I, I worked there for three years. And that was massively influential. So that partnership that Covenant created was helpful. But more than that, the cultural stuff that you're talking about was was incredibly important and formational, um, not because we talked about race. In fact, I don't really re- recall Covenant talking about race a lot. We did some, and of course, they do a lot now, thankfully. What it did is it created a way of understanding culture that required um, a spiritual openness. It required the ability to listen to other people and to understand that that culture is not just something that can be understood by slapping a theological stencil on top of it, but that you actually have to take that stencil away and listen. You have to listen to what people are saying. And Covenant, I think, created um, a, a kind of ethos. I've often said that I think one of the most important things that Covenant has created is an ethos, a way of a by which I mean not just a winsome disposition, but an actually a way of being in the world that is open um, to the neighbor and desires, even as we serve the neighbor with the gospel, desires to learn from and collaborate with. And I think that is really fundamental to my, to my formation. So I appreciate you, you know, pointing that out. It is like something about our imagine how our imaginations get shaped in, in all these, you know, different ways. I mean, whether it's, I know for me, it, it was definitely uh, growing up in Albuquerque and some of the, the the ways I interacted with race and then watching different films, listening to different music that helped shape it. And then it was going to Liberty University, which, you know, near Charlottesville where you, you were at and actually having really close African-American friends that was shaping for me that has cha- changed my life. Those that year that I spent there and living with those guys and hearing their stories and watching their life was shaping and life-changing for me. It made me care about things that I never probably would have cared about. It opened my imagination to something different, a world that could be different and better. You know, Greg, also, I think, I don't know what it's like to be other places, but being in Charlottesville the last 10 years, and I know you're not, I don't know if you're there now, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in Charlottesville, right? It's a crazy place. My daughter is a newspaper reporter in Charlottesville and she moved there and stuff hit the fan. And so UVA is a really interesting 
mix to study these issues, right? Has that been, and, and also to start off with doing RUF at that place. I know that at UVA, they didn't even talk about the slave, that slaves built UVA until the last five years. So there's been a lot of negotiating and hiding and changing, and you've been in the midst of that in those last few decades. Yeah, and I think that the the way that UVA is is perceiving itself right now really mirrors the growth, my own growth and process. When I came here, I was an RUF campus minister, and I wanted to talk about the gospel, and I wanted to talk about worldview, and I wanted to talk about the scriptures, and I wanted to talk about creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and I wanted to talk about the renewal of all things and inspire uh, people's imagination, students' imaginations to be a part of that. I wasn't really thinking about race. I, I cared about it, but I wasn't thinking about it. Um, and I certainly didn't, didn't understand it. Um, and I think that over time, largely because of my experience at UVA, it, uh, through scholars like Charles Marsh um, and others who, who, again, continue to shape my imagination and, and put African-American theologians and historians in front of me, um, that changed me. And I think, I think one of the, one of the most important things that I think the PCA could do, we could continue to do it. And, and I want to say RUF actually supported me in my first year of my PhD. They gave me a grant to do my PhD. And I think that says a lot about RUF and what they, what they did was they created an opportunity for me to learn and for me to listen to people that were outside of our world. And that was an investment on their part. And it completely, shaped my life. And as I told you, it was really in 2014, 2015, when I began to, I was slowly moving this direction. But when I had this, oh, wait a minute, I now understand my missiological context in a different way. That was in 2014, 15. I left Trinity in 2016. Charlottesville was on the national news in 2017. And, and so now this town, which really wasn't talking about race outside of the black community or outside certain kind of activist communities, Charlottesville was known as like, you know, one of the happiest towns in the United States, the best small city to live. It's, it's basically a resort town with a world-class university in the middle of it. Um, now is forced to reckon with race. And it's really just been in the past like three years that UVA has, has moved towards the enslaved workers Memorial, which is now, um, which is now complete. It's about a quarter mile from where I'm sitting, um, where we're reckoning with statues, you know, but, I've been in these downtown streets. When Heather Heyer got killed by that car, run over by that car, that was that was on a street where my office was. That's not to validate me by proximity to that. It's just to say that, you know, this is now central stage for how a lot of us who live here are having to experience the world. And I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. So now uh, you've written this book with uh, our previous guest, Duquan. So tell us a little bit about the the book and then we'll we'll break. Yeah, so the book is, uh, it, it's, it's um, the goal of the book is to introduce Christian communities to the topic of reparations. What we found is that lots of folks in our world care about race, um, but they tend to talk about either personal repentance or r r racial reconciliation or even, even kind of institutional reform, you know, of mass incarceration or things like that. But the language of reparations was always met with, I mean, come on, we're not really going to talk about that. And, but what I realized because I'm completely submerged in African American communities is that they're talking about it all the time. And that, that felt like, um, 
a willful neglect on, on the part of the church. And so what we wanted to do was create a book that made essentially a moral, historical, and theological case for why this matters, and then to introduce churches to some African-American leaders who can help them think through the way to take responsibility for reparations in their own communities. And a lot of that is basically a lot of the, the practical version, the pragmatism of this um, is driven by the fact that it is our federal politics are so absolutely uh, constipated right now in terms of like thinking about these issues that we can't, it's obstructed essentially. And so we, we think that the local church, ch- local church community should take responsibility for this because there's not a lot of national scale unified leadership around this, around this topic, especially that includes white folks. So our goal is to get churches involved and, uh, and our hope for the book is that that's exactly what they'll do. That sounds really, really great. I can't wait to read it. It comes out in April 2021, so you got some time to finish. Duke said you need to step up your writing because you're not pulling your weight, buddy. You got a chapter to turn in tonight. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, both of us, I'll speak for myself. It's been it's been hard. It's a... It's a but it's also been transformative. I think writing this book is, has further um, changed me, um, and I'm, gra- I'm grateful for that opportunity. All right, so we're talking to Greg Thompson coming to us from Charlottesville, and this is iHeartPCA. We are talking about some deep things, and we're going to talk about those a little more. We might lighten it up a little bit. I'm unsure, but we'll come back to you after the break, so catch you in a second. Eternal Son of God became man and saw us and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures. iHeartPCA is sponsored by White Blackbird Books, a publishing house dedicated to promoting good theology, redemptive stories, and important conversations, even if they are sometimes difficult. Listeners might be interested in our books that discuss race and biblical racial reconciliation. Go to Amazon and look up All Are Welcome, Embrace, Heal Us Emmanuel, and Hear Us Emmanuel. You can jump onto the website at storied.pub forward slash white hyphen blackbird hyphen books. That's a mouthful. Or look us up on our Facebook page. Order one, read it, and write a review iHeartPCA is also brought to you by Zoom. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Being the eternal Son of This is iHeartPCA. We are coming to you from Albuquerque, Oklahoma City, and Charlottesville, Virginia, with our friend Greg Thompson. And so, Greg, I'm interested in this musical you're talking about with Show Baraka, and I want you to talk a little more about that. I want to go through Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and I want to hear a few songs. Um, You can... Give us your take on some songs. So let's just 
hear more about this musical? Yeah, so I, I think that uh, our lawyers will prevent me from disclosing the sound of the music at this point on a recorded venue. So just kidding. Um, so the musical was written. Well, let me back up. So one of the burdens that I had and the realizations I have is that is that many, many, many uh, folks in the white community just don't know black stories. They, they just don't know them. Um, and that's a part that's obviously a leg, part of the legacies of segregation, but it's also a part of our inefficacy in the kind of racial healing that we're all seeking in this denomination. And um, so I thought, well, how do we tell these stories in a way that, that lots of people can, can hear them? And so I had this idea. My kids like Hamilton, and they're interested in, in musicals. We're a musicals family. And so I said, well, why don't we write a musical? I called Show because I trust and respect him. And we came together and said, yes. Yeah, it's called Show. I call, yeah, well, he and I. Yo, show. What's his number? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I said it that way, but we uh, we had met one another in at a couple of conferences. We didn't know each other very well, and we had the awkward sort of me having to say, "This is not a diversity call, and I'm not calling to pick your brain. I'm actually interested in working on a project together. Here's the project." And he said, "I don't know if I want to do that or not." Um, so I took him to Claiborne Temple. I asked him to fly to Memphis and meet me there. I took him inside Claiborne Temple where these events took place. And he walked in and he was like, I'm in. It's a, it's a magical place. And, um, and so we put a team together. Now there's a team of, of uh, five of us that are working together on this with shared ownership. Uh, and the goal really is to, um, to tell the story of the sanitation worker strike, but also to bring it into contemporary, into the contemporary setting. So it's called union, the musical, you can, see uh, unionthemusical.com and that's our that's our that's our homepage at this point and so what we do is we partner with local communities that are interested in talking about race or that are talking about race and equity issues and we use the performance as a catalyst or either a capstone or just to help along the way and in the, the context of cities that are doing this and the goal is for the finances from this to uh, to go back into reparations work in Memphis is it, did it, it was just, it just happens in Memphis, Greg? Is that where? No, we, we, um, we do, we partner with cities around the, the country. Um, again, we had three shows that were scheduled for this, this spring, Charlottesville, Birmingham, and Florence, South Carolina. Um, but we've, we've done it in obviously in Memphis, uh, Winston-Salem and Nashville. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we partner with, with communities and community leaders who, who are looking for just some support. And we think the creative arts provide a really important venue for talking about these things that, that takes some of the political antagonism out of the discussion. And now we're encountering a story together. That's part of it. And part of it for me was I wanted to put these amazing actors uh, and dancers and musicians from Memphis on the stage. And I want, these are people that lots of people don't know about. They don't ever see them. And I want people to be in awe of their beauty. <laughs> and so that's, that's part of the, part of the work because I certainly am in awe of it. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Really, really cool. I can't wait to see it. Yes. Yeah. It's like a, so imagine one of the cool things about doing a Memphis based civil rights story is that the sound is already there. The music is there mm -hmm. with Stax records. So imagine combining Stax records, you know, there's Stax and Motown are the two big record labels at that point working in that space. Um, combining that with hip hop and uh, it's a very dance heavy show. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very honest show too. Yeah. Sounds, sounds great. I saw, uh, I, re I remember seeing, we saw Hamilton on, on the tour in Dallas 
And uh, man, I, the emotion that I felt in watching that the, from the music to the performances was just just so amazing, uh, over, overwhelming in some ways, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant show. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the first things Show and I did together when we agreed to do this is we went to see Hamilton together in New York and spent mm-hmm. the weekend together just talking about the power of musicals and went to that musical and met with the cast afterwards and said, okay, like, here's what we're doing. Let's talk about these things. Um, because we, we actually do think that we have to reshape the American imagination around these yep. issues. And the way to do that is through these kinds of, um, you know, public experiences. It's so true. I mean, I, I remember the first, I saw a music, like a Christian musical here in Albuquerque that came to our civic auditorium. It was called high tops. And I just remember they had a big high top on the stage. And, but I, I was so attached to my emotional, to my heart. It really did something that I'll never forget that I've experienced almost every other musical that I've seen live. It, it has done something to me, affected me emotionally. Like few other things can, um, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, a fa- it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, I'd never written a musical before. Um, yeah. But, you know, you put a team together, the people who know how to do that, and and it has been incredible. I remember being on the tour bus with my – I took my daughter on her tour last year, being on a tour bus with my, my at that time, 13-year-old daughter and the entire cast, and we're gone for four days together, and everybody's singing and, you know, sharing music and joking and just – it's, it's an incredible thing. I mean, I can tell you one thing. I never imagined when I took my ordination vows that <laughs> 20 years later, I'd be sitting on a tour bus with a bunch of actors, singers, and dancers as a part of my understanding of mission. And, and I am, could not be more thrilled. Mm. So um, I think we're coming towards the last question here. So just to kind of keep this theme of musicals, so other than Hamilton and your own musical, uh, do you have uh, a favorite musical besides those those two excellent ones? Mm. Do I have a favorite musical? This will probably be a question that I don't really answer very well, so I'm happy for you to revise it. Uh, I don't. I don't have a, a favorite one in part because I'm just so enamored of the entire um, of the entire process, and you know. Uh, I would say, but I'll answer it this way. I don't really have a favorite musical because I, I think everyone is, is unique and spectacular and you listen really carefully to the, to what the authors are trying to say. And, and that in different shows require different things of you, you know? Um, I would say that I, we really love Matilda, uh, mm-hmm. as just a brilliant, 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 brilliant show. Um, and, uh, we also like Evan, dear Evan Hansen, uh, yeah. you know, and because it's a show that deals honestly with deceit and mm-hmm. need and grief. Um, those have been two, two powerful shows, but there, there are lots of others that, uh, that we, that have, that have formed us. We, uh, sat in the front, we got one of the front row seats for dear Evan Hansen in New York, my daughter and I last spring and you know, where your feet are kind of like, you know, barely have any room, but, everybody was right above us and it was just amazing to experience it that close. Uh, and the pat, you know, you feel, uh, everything so, so vividly. 
Um, yeah, I cry every time. I cry every musical I go to. And it's not because I'm sentimental. It's because I'm overwhelmed by the power of and the beauty of what I'm seeing. I just like, these people are free, man. And they are in it and they are at the top of their craft and they are like working as fully, you know, present human beings, just giving it all to this story. And that it's just, it's overwhelming. It's totally overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. Come From Away was another one for me that... I was, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, I don't know that. That's the story of the, you know, after 9-11, all the planes that had to land Mm. in Newfoundland. And basically, it's a story of hospitality and making room. And, uh, man, it's it's a great show. Uh, Great. Thanks for telling me that. I'd love to see it. That was the one. So our graduation present to my senior high school daughter was we were going to go to all the musicals in the season and the first one that was canceled was come from away which i really wanted to see but the last one we went to was miss saigon Hmm. i think miss saigon is interesting because it's real uneven it has some very famous songs but the story is rough and it ends spoiler alert pretty bad and it begins in a brothel and that's how they get together and i remember being so moved because it seemed very genesisy or uh jeremiah or lamentations but i i saw so many honestly conservative evangelical christians pan it because it started off the way it started off. And I'm like, this, this is the way stories start. Come on. You know, it's not just amazing the whole time. And I would, I just wanted to pull my hair out because this is what happens. And it's a picture of reality and history presented. Um, and then it ends up to be redemptive in a weird way in a death but it's, I was so moved and I'm the same way, Greg, I'll cry at every single one of them. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that response that people got. I, I increasingly, um, I think reality is the right word. We have to decide whether we want to tell and hear real stories or whether we only want to tell and hear and expose ourselves to the kind of stories that already tell, that tell us things we already know. And, um, and I think that, that opening ourselves up in a creative way to the voices of other human beings is a very important and frankly, I think incarnational way of, of being. One of the reasons I hesitated when you asked me the question, Justin, about my favorite musical is because one of the realities of Broadway is that there are very few black stories. Um, and, and so as I've worked in this space, I mean, you can think about Porgy and Bess, you can think about the color purple, um, you can think about Motown and some other, other things, but, but, um, there's even one called Memphis, um, all of which I think are incredibly powerful, but there's Broadway is a deeply inequitable place. Right. Um, and that, that is, it's just complicated, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. Greg, I, I just want you to know how much, uh, you've meant to me. I know from a distance, we had a phone call several years ago talking about my church when it was a very, uh, you know, crucial time and you helped so much you've helped shape vision and faithful presence and 
Um, you're one of the few pastors that I've actually like preached a couple of your sermons almost word for word because they were so uh, beautiful and impactful to my soul that I wanted my church to hear them. And so uh, thanks for Thank thanks for what you're doing and the work that you have done. And it's been it has far reaching effects, even though you don't know it. So I'm, I'm appreciative of you. Uh, and I appreciate you saying that. I think every year, uh, one of the ex- one of the experiences of where I am in my life and in my spiritual life and vocational life is my life becomes increasingly unintelligible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it becomes I- increasingly unmoored from and um, and maybe unintelligible to the institutions that I've historically been a part of. Um, cause I, you know, I'm the guy that people ask what I do and I'm like, do you have 10 minutes? Right. You know, there's right. just hard to sort of say I'm this. Um, and so knowing that, and one of the interesting things about that is when I look back off and wonder like, what have I, what have I you know, done? What, what has been here? Not in sense of an existential crisis, but it's just all confusing to me now. And so I appreciate you saying that and putting up a signpost that, you know, one, at one point we, we encountered one another and it was, and it was Christian and good. And so thanks for saying that. And I agree. I want to jump in and say, Greg, I appreciate you and your friendship since I've known you since coming to seminary and being an RUF together. And you've pastored one of my kids and, and then I'm in, I'm in, let me know how we can help. I think what you're doing is super important. I think it's, it's super important for the world, for the nation. I think it's important for our own souls, but it's also important for our denomination. And um, so however we can help in that work to just know about it or to lend our voices or to just listen differently, speak differently. I don't think that we have always as a denomination talked about the kingdom of God in, in a very correct way. And so having people stay in the fight and in the marriage, but change it is really helpful. And so I'm thankful to follow you and listen to you and work with you. So thanks. Well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. And you mind if I say just a couple of things? I guess. Depends on what they are. Uh, Yeah. Mr. Mr. Jabber over here. Um, I do, I do think that part of the work is, um, is to help give our denomination, our people, a different way of talking about the world, um, that makes them feel slightly out of control. Um, and, and I, I have to say that I'm, I'm increasingly weary of the creation fall redemption consummation framework disembedded from the rea- the social and political realities of American history. To the extent that we do that, we feel like it feels to me, and I, I felt this about my own preaching, I'm actually complicit in a fantasy, <laughs> you know? And so I think giving our people language, and I, we do, can I say in the book, um, you know, one of our hopes is that the language of white supremacy and reparations will be as easy on the tongue of the church as race and racial reconciliation are right now, mm-hmm. um, because it, that's the direction that it, it really needs to go. Um, and so I appreciate that, that, that support and that interest. And I appreciate what you guys are doing because you're, you're trying to support and serve and encourage and promote an institution that I'm a part of, but, but I am not facing that institution. I'm facing outward and holy. And so I appreciate the opportunity to, to be brought into a conversation about our denomination, because I'm never, I'm never in those conversations at all. I'm just trying to do the work that I'm doing and hope that it bears witness to something true. Well, you are today and you are bearing witness and there's a long history 
going back, like you said, to ninth grade, and you're a ways past that. So, um, but at your heart, you're still a little ninth grader, right? And um, we see you. Man, we not- see you. Uh, thanks for being an IRPCA. If you're listening, then you've hung in, and we've had hard conversations, but they're good. And so we want uh, Jesus to be Lord of his church, not just the way we see it, but the way he really is. Amen. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Justin. Thank and you. We'll God bless you, you guys. All right, peace. See you, Greg.